All right. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. For the last several weeks when I have been in town, we have taught line upon line through the pastoral epistles. So we, we started with 1 Timothy. We completed 1 Timothy. And now I'm, I'm just, I plan to, unless the Lord interrupts me, continue teaching through 2 Timothy and then into the epistle of Titus. These are called pastoral epistles because they are the apostle Paul writing to his spiritual sons, Timothy and Titus, in their position as pastors. In the two epistles to Timothy, Timothy had been left and set over the church at Ephesus, which was Paul's premier church, whereas Titus had been sent or left at Crete, which was basically the gutter. <laughs> it was basically the alley cats of churches. Crete or the Cretan people had a reputation for being evil beasts, slow bellies, gluttons, and liars. And that had been their reputation for 500 years. That, that quote comes from a fifth century philosopher, fifth century BC. Paul's still quoting him about 60 AD. And so for, for 500 years, 560 years, the Cretans were known as evil, lazy, and lying. What a horrible reputation for a people. And yet he sends Titus to that island nation to build the churches, to establish elders in every, of the church, every one of the churches on that nation. We'll get to Titus in a couple weeks. Now we want to pick up in Timothy, 2 Timothy. And this is Paul writing a, an epistle. In my research, I show that 1 Timothy was written about 67 AD, and then 2 Timothy was written about 68 AD, so about a year apart. And I want to see here, so the first epistle of Timothy was written from Laodicea, which is the chiefest city of Phrygia, and that's only about within 100 miles of Ephesus. If you remember, Laodicea is one of the seven churches of the Apocalypse, Ephesus is the first church of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 2. And then the letters of the seven churches kind of make an arc or circuit. And they're quite circuitous, fancy word. And they start with Ephesus and go all the way around to Laodicea. And each church is about 30 to 40 miles apart in this giant circuit in what is today Turkey. So Paul's writing a letter from Laodicea to Ephesus, only maybe 100 miles apart. I'd have to check my geography. And let me see real quick. I think the end of Timothy, 2 Timothy tells us where that epistle is written from. Uh, written from Rome. So within the year, Paul had apparently, and I don't know how we know this, traveled from Laodicea to Rome. The footnote in the King James Bible says, the second epistle unto Timotheus, ordained the first bishop of the church of the Ephesians, was written from Rome and Paul was brought before Nero the second time. And most folks believe that this is near the end of Paul's life, though there is a third missionary endeavor not recorded in the gospels or excuse me the book of acts or the epistles that maybe he was not beheaded at this trip before Nero but a subsequent third time all that just giving you the historical and perhaps geographical background to second Timothy so let's go ahead and start in this epistle and let's go line upon line and once again I'm teaching this because I want us to understand the pastor's role if you can appreciate everything a pastor does and understand the kind of encouragement, the kind of instructions the pastors are given behind the scenes, it may help you understand better what to expect out of me or whoever your pastor may be, and also understand how to cooperate with the pastor. In these pastoral epistles, it's almost like getting to be inside a management meeting between the owner of a company 
and those that are running the individual stores. And here you have the Apostle Paul revealing his heart by the Holy Ghost to the manager, if you want to call him that. Some people may be offended by that term, but I think it helps us understand the role to some degree. The Apostle Paul established his church at Ephesus. He's had to move on and again, pardon the expression, but it may be an allegory to help us understand it. He's writing to the store manager of the franchise. Paul established this franchise called the church at Ephesus. And I don't mean that in any disrespect. And now he's writing a letter back to tell the manager of that store. He established how he wants that store run by the Holy Spirit. So uh, pardon the American parlance, but I think it'll help us understand what we're looking at in these epistles. Now we're thankful that these epistles are for all of us, but in the moment when they were written, they weren't written for the church at Ephesus. They were written for the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And then of course, Timothy would take these teachings and expound them. So understand the true context of the epistle is between a spiritual father and his spiritual son, and more specifically, an apostle and the pastor over the local church. So let's begin in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, that helps us understand how ministry callings work. You don't get to appoint yourself. You don't get to promote yourself. These callings are by the will of God. I didn't get to pick being a pastor. If you have been with us long enough, you've heard my testimony that I would have never chosen to be a pastor. I loved Pastor Vaughn, but I never wanted to be him. I loved him. He was our founding pastor. He was my first spiritual father. I love Pastor Vaughn, but I thought, praise God, I never have to be like them. I don't have to be a pastor like him. I wanted to be like him. I just didn't want to be a pastor. And then when he passed away and I didn't know I was going to be pastor yet, I thought, I feel sorry for that chump who's going to come in and have to replace that guy, Pastor Vaughn. I feel sorry for that chump. That guy's a schmo. What a sucker. How's God going to twist some dude's arm to come lead us? And then lo and behold, it gets to be me. And maybe I'm still bitter about it 16 years later. I don't know. No, I don't. I feel pretty good about it. I enjoy what I get to do here for God and, and for you guys. But ministry callings are by the will of God. And truthfully, anything we're called to do in the earth is by the will of God. And this, this seems to be a reoccurring thing God is reminding us of in our local church here is that God is not interested in our dreams. Now, he wants to supply your needs and he wants to answer your heart, but he's not really concerned with what vision you have burped up, vomited up, or formulated up for your future. He has a destiny for your life. And if we're going to live successful in this earth, it's going to be a success standard based on God's word and his standard. And it's going to be according to his will. And I want to keep reminding you, especially the younger generation, everything you feed on, you don't realize it, but your heart is cannibalizing parts of everything you're feeding on to formulate a destiny for your life. And that's going to ruin your life. When I was a kid, I was born in 76. So my earliest memories of my future are probably 1980 and 81. We moved from Baton Rouge to Knoxville in 82. I remember being at the Lutheran kindergarten and I remember drawing pictures of a police officer, of course, Chips, California Highway Patrol, Officer Poncherelli, and the white guy. I don't remember his name. Everybody loved Poncherelli. Uh, that was really popular. I remember wanting to be a police officer. And then a few years later, when NASA really took off, no pun intended, with the space shuttle, 
everybody I knew wanted to be an astronaut. That was their destiny. That was their dream. And that's because those were the things being put in front of my generation at five and six and seven and eight, those formative years. And then, of course, you mix our culture in with that. And the culture says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the answer is, well, you got to come up with something. So let's make it up. And now you fast forward 50 years. I'm not quite 50, but 50 years of this. And now we've just believed the lie that we can be anything we want to. Now, if you want to go to hell, yeah, be anything you want to. But if you want to serve Jesus, you're going to be whatever he calls you to be. And that has to be according to the will of God. The most successful people I know by the kingdom standards will tell you, I, I am not doing anything I ever imagined I would do. I want to say that again. The most successful people I know, the most joy-filled, satisfied people I know, successful based on the Bible and the kingdom standard, they would tell you, I'm not doing anything I imagined I would ever do in high school or college. So listen to the words of biblically successful people. I'm not living my dream. I'm living God's plan. And I would encourage you to trust me on this, especially you younger folks. God's plan for your life will tick all the boxes in your heart because God's plan for your life requires what God made you to be. And God made you to be something that will fulfill his plan and that will bring full satisfaction on the inside of you. You'll find yourself so fulfilled even though maybe on paper it doesn't look as glamorous as some TikTok influencer or some Instagram merch peddler. <laughs> it really is quite shameful. Your life is meant to be more than a social media influencer. I'm an apostle by the will of God, by the will of Jesus Christ is what Paul said, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. So we might say, if you want to have the life that's in Christ Jesus, find the will of God for your life. If you don't know what it is, we mentioned it Sunday night. I had a meeting with somebody today that said that what I taught Sunday night was very helpful. We remember we were in First Chronicles and we talked about David and the chronicler of Chronicles lists all these soldiers gathered to him and 10,000 of this tribe and 20,000 of this tribe and warriors like this and warriors like this. And these are the people that God is drawing to David and David, I'm, you know, being a little creative here, taking some creative license. David says, ah, I kind of sure I'm surrounded by a lot of military people. I guess, I guess this is what I'm called to do. You can tell if you're smart, what you're called to do by the types of things that keep gravitating towards you. Doesn't matter what you fancy yourself. Social media will cause you to fancy yourself some broccoli-headed, earring-wearing, pearl-necklace-fingernail-painted dude wearing shorts with a one-inch seam and a shirt so tight you get hit on by dudes at Food Lion. Why would you want to be that? Why don't you walk with God and be what he's made you to be? There's life in finding the will of God for your life. So look around you. What, what are you gravitating towards? And then where does God have you today? And have you passed the test of where God has you today? All right, let's move on. Verse two, to Timothy. So Paul to Timothy, not Paul to the church, not Paul to the saints at Thyatira or the region of Pergamos or Lydda. Paul, a father to Timothy, a son. Paul, an apostle to Timothy, a son. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. So that lets us know just in the forward and opening 
address of this letter, this epistle, this is a private letter. And God has seen fit to give us insights into the private life of a father and a son and a spiritual father and a spiritual son and an apostle who's ordained the church, built it, and the pastor he set in over it. And that gives us the context of the entire epistle. And that's why we're studying it so you can understand what goes on behind the scenes in ministry. Because it's not like the South has always wanted it to be. It's not like Christian television has passed it off as being. It's a lot more to it than that. There is a humanity, um, an insecurity, a pride. There's a, there's a lot of issues that have to be resolved behind the scenes of ministry. Probably the most important thing is to keep in mind there is a humanity to be considered when you're talking about a pastor overseeing a church. And that's never more apparent than with Timothy, who, as we've mentioned in the weeks past, was a mama's boy and had confidence issues and had to constantly be, ha uh, be given encouragement from his spiritual father. So to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace. Now that's worth stopping right there. All of Paul's epistles begin with grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. To the, those at Ephesus, grace and mercy. But to Timothy and Titus, the pastors, Paul adds this third noun. Grace, mercy, and peace. Why would he extend that to pastors? Well, very easy. They're pastors. <laughs> they don't just need grace. They don't just need mercy. They also need peace. Why? Because you're dealing with people. And people are always bringing some kind of tumult, some kind of turmoil. There's always some sheep a little nervous and you've got to keep the peace. So grace, mercy, and peace. And I find that comical that he has to extend that to Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. You, you look at chap, uh, Titus chapter one, begins the same way. Uh, let's see here. Grace, mercy, and peace. But if you hop over, let's say to just Ephesians, he just says, Excuse me, grace and peace. Mercy is the one he adds. I'm, I forgive me. Uh, Galatians says grace and peace. So it's mercy, which is the third ingredient that he doesn't extend to either the other churches. He only extends grace and mercy. He puts that sandwich in there of mercy. Why mercy? Because the pastor is having to deal with God's people. And we often say, God, have mercy on me. Remember, like Moses said, Lord, look at these people. If you love me, kill me. We don't want murder or suicide in the New Testament. We just need a lot more mercy. So grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3, I thank God. Now, this is interesting. It's the same expression in the Greek from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank God. It's the only two places that I can see this is used here, but it's not the simple, you would think, literal translation or transliteration of I thank God. It literally means in the Greek, I cling to the grace of God. Only in Timothy does he give that expression. I cling to the grace of God. King James translates it as I thank God. Let me see what other translations say about it. Let's go to Timothy 1. I thank God for you. Yeah, everything seems to say, I thank God, but it literally says, I cling to the grace of God. The King James completely omits charis in the original manuscript, which charis is grace. So echo 
is I think. And for whatever reason I have or I hold, I possess, I possess the grace of God. This is a, uh, an interesting statement because even the Apostle Paul, who's this greatest man of the millennium, he has to cling to the grace of God. And we define grace as God's ability to do in and through you what you can't do yourself. Simply put, God's grace is heaven's help for your life. It's not just unmerited favor. That's kind of the Amplified's popular definition. Grace is much more than unmerited favor. It's heaven's help. And Paul is saying to Timothy, almost to like nudge him, listen, son, I may make it look easy and you may never think you're able to be as cool as me because you know sometimes sons think that way of their father that they'll never be as good as their daddy. But he's saying, listen, I, I have to cling to God's grace. I may make it look easy, Timothy, but it's because I cling to the grace of God. So the, I see it as this inward encouragement to Timothy. I, I would almost see it as, Timothy, you can be like me. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy in our mind because we don't think we can do what our leaders can do. And maybe, maybe that's a diffusing mechanism. Maybe that's a excusing mechanism. And when you say, I, well, I could never be like that. I could never be that great. Then you fail to see what makes that person you're looking up to great. It's not them. It's their ability to cling to the grace of God. And whether you guys esteem me as something, some of you do, some of you may not, and it's neither here nor there to me, if I make it look easy, it's because I cling to the grace of God. I look up to Dr. Barclay. He's my spiritual father. If he makes it look easy, it's because he clings to the grace of God. When we took over the church after Pastor Vaughn died, I was smart enough to know me succeeding as the pastor of our church was going to be wholly dependent on God. I did not have the goods. I did not have the experience. I didn't even have an ounce of training to be a pastor. If I have any complaint against Pastor Vaughn, it would be that he did not prep me at all to take over for him. Yet, when I stood in the pulpit, ordained as the pastor of our church, the grace of God came upon me to pastor us. And for the, probably the first several months, some services more than others, I felt like I was transformed into his form. I felt like I walked like him. I felt like I gesticulated like him. I felt like I sounded like him. But I very quickly understood it was the anointing of God, the mantle of God, the grace of God coming upon me. And that's also when I realized that Pastor Vaughn was nothing but a slide, an old picture slide on the old picture carousels. Older folks know what I'm talking about. Younger folks may not. Let's take a tour down antiquity, if you will. Back in the day, before we had projectors, you would have slideshows and you'd take your film and they would develop it. And I'm not trying to be condescending. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You develop your pictures and they would make slides out of them. They would do that for you at Walmart or Kodak. And those slides, it was a standardized little slide. It was about this big. You'd put those in a slide carousel, little donut ring. And that went on a projector, a slide projector. And it had a light and a magnifying lens and it would throw the picture up almost like the little kaleidoscope thing, whatever that's called. It's escaping me right now, a little red thing and you go click and you'd hit a button and it would drop a slide in front of the lens and it would project it. This is how most of my education in college came was through carousels of slides. Now near the end of my college career, we had access to better equipment and I could do slideshows myself on uh, PowerPoints. And you'd hit a button 
you throw a picture up. If you hit the button again, it'd go click and it would pull up the, cam, uh, the, the slide and move it forward and drop the next one. You could go forward and backwards. You could zoom in, zoom out. And usually you had a, a remote with a cable. When I stood in the pulpit, taking over for Pastor Vaughn officially as our pastor, I felt just like him. And it's in that moment I realized that all Pastor Vaughn was, was a slide. And the glory of God shone through him to the people. And he had died and God had hit click. And the next slide on that carousel was me. And now it's my time to stand in the light. The light is the same, but the person it's coming through is different. And so though I felt like Pastor Vaughn and everything I perceived him to be, what I realized my perception was, was the anointing of God on him. And that anointing was God Almighty, not anything Pastor Vaughn was. And the reason I felt like him is that I could feel the power of God, the office of God, the gifting of God, the grace of God come through me as a little slide for the congregation. And I also realized in that moment, if I mess up, God just sits there like this and just hits click and the next guy replaces me and I'm tossed to the back end of the carousel. So Paul says, Timothy, I cling to the grace of God. And if that's the secret to my success, it's got to be the secret to yours. I cling to heaven's help. Every day we ought to say, God, help me. I thank God. I cling to God's help, God's grace, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. Now, this is interesting. What this tells us is that even in the days where he served from his forefathers, Paul was a murderer. But even in the murdering stages of his life when he would kill Christians, he said, I did it ignorantly because I thought I did it for God. And remember, Jesus Christ said, there will come a day where those that kill you will think they're doing God a favor. That certainly was a prophecy that Paul fulfilled in part. He had a part in playing the persecutor of Christians and the murderers of Christians. But he could say, I did it with a clear conscience. He thought he was stoning heretics and blasphemers, which the law of Moses permitted. So everything Paul did that we judge as evil, and it was evil, was in line with the law of Moses, according to Paul's interpretation. And he was a Pharisee, so it was a pharisaical interpretation of the Torah. But he can still say, I've served God with clear conscience. And I think you and I, we've done stuff with a clear conscience, only to step through it and look back and go, oh, wow, that, that, that wasn't right. Wow. I shouldn't have done that. But I did it with a good heart, but I would never do that again. Paul's able to say with a pure conscience that without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. And that lets you know Paul was praying constantly. And when he would pray, he would have a remembrance of Timothy. And he'd pray for him. And you got to know it's because he's so dear to Timothy. I can tell you as a pastor, I don't pray for everybody every day, but those that are very dear to me, or my wife and I, we have a grease board in our bedroom and we have a list of people on there who are in critical needs right now or going through battles and they stay on that list. And as their needs are supplied by God, we erase them and put somebody else's need. We have to have that grease board to remind us of critical people in our lives who are facing critical issues. Not that we don't love them, but they're just not as close to us as say our own children or our own marriage or even those in the church that are fighting desperate battles. 
But Paul was able to say, I have remembrance of you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears. Now, what is, what's Timothy crying about? Well, I can tell you as a pastor, there's a lot of stuff you cry about behind the scenes. When I took over the church, there were so many battles to fight, and my greatest fear was not you guys or, or anybody who was there in those days. It was failing my God. It was disappointing him. It was falling short of the grace of God. And I, I shed a lot of tears because God would have me do things that seemed impossible, and I couldn't find a way in my own strength to do it. And I wept because I didn't want to fail my God and I was at an impasse because to fail God was unacceptable, but to have these hard confrontations with perverts and derelicts and heretics in the church, that was impossible too. But I'm not gonna fail God, so I might as well go make somebody else angry because it's not gonna be God I'm gonna make angry. So I shed a lot of tears over that. One of the reasons, my faith right now, I, I wanna be able to meet Peter Furler he was the founding member of the Newsboys, lead singer, ball-headed guy, Australian. My friend Pastor Luffman's good friends with him. They've been friends forever. And uh, I missed an opportunity at Thanksgiving to talk to Peter Furler. Really irritates me. I get home from church that Sunday morning, and I missed a call from Luffman. Luffman texts me every Sunday morning about 4.30 a.m. and says, Pastor Chris, Miss Manda, you've been prayed for. And then he gives some big scripture he prayed for us. So Luffman, I have a missed call from Luffman right after church. And I thought, well, he must have just, you know, rump dialed me or something. And then all of a sudden, like I just missed the call. So I called him back. It goes to voicemail. So then all of a sudden, a voicemail pops up. So I listen to the voicemail and it's Peter Furler, the lead singer of the Newsboys. I still got it on my phone. He's like, hey there, mate. It's Peter Furler of the Newsboys. Luffman says I need to give you a call. We need to talk. Sorry, I missed you, man. Have a happy Thanksgiving, eh? So I bummed, and uh, he was visiting with Luffman, and Luffman said, hey, you got to call my pastor friend. He wants to meet you. Anyway, all that aside, I'm going to get to meet Peter Furler one day. I talked to his wife before that. She was trying to get me backstage at one of his concerts in Nashville. But the reason I want to meet Peter Furler, number one, his music's always blessed me. But in the early years of pastoring, I had a very critical confrontation I needed to do in the church, and I was sobbing with stress and fear over how to handle it. And I, I was just terrified I was gonna fail God. And I happened to be listening to the Newsboys song, Adoration, which we always do here around Christmas. And the lyric in the song about, uh, he, about Jesus being the infant child, he raises a wrinkled hand through the dust and the flies, wrapped in rags like we are, and we barely open eyes. He takes my finger and he won't let go and he won't let go. It's nothing like I knew before, but it's all I need to know. So I'm listening to that song, and there's this beautiful poetic lyric from Peter Furler about baby Jesus gripping this shepherd's finger. And the image, of course, is the Son of God has you, and he's never going to let you go, and he's going to be with you always and make sure you never fail him. That ministered to me and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And it was the confidence I needed to go confront this one individual who was a sexual pervert, this gentleman in our church who was just a, a porn addict pervert. It gave me the confidence. So when I read about this young pastor having tears and Paul knew about those tears, I get it. Because there's a lot of emotions that goes on behind the scene. Because it's not, we don't, a real pastor doesn't exist to ruffle your feathers. A real pastor exists not to fail God. 
And if, if me failing God ruffles your feathers or if me not failing God ends up with your feathers ruffled, then I'm going to burn your feathers because I'm not going to fail my God. But here Paul says, I want to see you because I know it's hard on you. I know you're going through a rough spell and you can hear this father just wanting to be with his spiritual son to comfort him. And now at this point, I don't want to say Timothy is weak because these are real experiences that every pastor, a genuine, not a hireling, but a real pastor goes through. That even though Timothy has tears, Paul says, if I can just be with you, I'll be filled with joy. So I think it's cool to see Timothy's tears, that sorrow, stress, fear coming forth. Paul just wants to be with them to have joy. You see that these are real men with emotions and the gospel and the ministry is an emotional ordeal. We're not these stoic faith people. Crying is not faith. Laughter is not faith. Being an automaton <laughs> with a broomstick up your ear in, that is faith. Ah, come on, you're a moron and you're fake. The, the, the gospel is nitty gritty and ministry is nitty gritty and pastoring God's people, you're always stepping in sheep poop somewhere. And if it's not sheep poop, it's sheep blood because one sheep bit the other sheep in the rear end and now they're kicking each other. And you're supposed to deal with that. Verse five. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you. Now, unfeigned, that's King James, which means sincere, genuine. Unfeigned means it's not fake. In boxing, in martial arts, even in fencing, you have what's called a feint. And a feint is where you, like, you throw a punch, but you don't, and you pull it back, and that's a feint. So it's a pretend punch that you use to get your opponent to block or to stagger. Here, feigned faith is fake faith. And Paul's saying of Timothy, I remember you had sincere, genuine faith. But it was first in your grandmother Lois and then also in your mother Eunice. Now, because the gospel is relatively new at this point, these were Jewesses who had a faith in the coming Messiah that was then converted to faith in Christ. And so it's a relatively new faith. Even though we're into the third generation of it, it's a relatively new faith faith in Christ because again we're 68 AD we're only about what is this 36 years past Christ's ascension so we're basically into the second generation if a generation's 20 years we're two generations past the resurrection of Christ and we've already got the gospel being put into a third generation called Timothy Paul says I'm persuaded that this faith is in you as well this also brings us back to the point that Timothy was a mama's boy there's no mention of his daddy here. We know that his daddy was a Greek because Paul, excuse me, Timothy was uncircumcised. But he had a grandmother that was apparently a praying grandmother and a mother, Eunice, who was a praying mother. And their prayers for this grandboy, this grandson named Timothy, made sure his faith was hot and on charge and fired up for God. Verse 6, Therefore I put thee in remembrance that you... Stir up the gift of God. Now, even Timothy has to be reminded. The reason I go to conferences, and I see usually I go to at least three conferences a year. I've been to as many as six or seven conferences a year. And one of the things that does for me is it keeps me hot. It keeps me charged up. It keeps me stirred up. A lot of my preacher friends in the denominational circles, they don't really do conferences. So they just go, 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 go till they nearly burn out. And then they end up having to take a six-week sometimes a six-month sabbatical to refresh. I would rather pay it on installment plans. 
So I usually take a week of vacation a year with my family. Some of my friends have four weeks of vacation built into their compensation package for their church. We usually just do one week. Uh, but at the same time, if I want to take off on a Friday and go hang out with my kids or just not show up on a Monday or Tuesday, that's what I do. I regulate. But going to conferences, three-day conferences several times a year, that's nine days, 10 days, 11 days away from family or church, that keeps me hot. It keeps me stirred up. Here, Paul's having to remind Timothy, don't forget to stir yourself up. Because if we don't stir ourselves up, we go cold. The, the expression, stir up the gift of God, means to kindle the flame, to blow upon the flames, to stir up, to kindle up, to inflame one's mind, to strengthen one's zeal. One definition even says to resuscitate. I think Brother Hagen taught, one translation said, maintain the glow. Don't forget to maintain the glow. Stir up the gift that's in you. Now, this comes back, we talked Sunday morning about the sacraments. And one of the sacraments, the Catholics call taking holy orders or the ordination to ministry. That's what this is a reference to. The gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, that's a pastoral gifting. It's a ministry gifting. You can be called, but if you're never set apart, and, and you can debate with me all you want, but until you've been in the ministry and ordained people and watched how the operation of the Spirit works, you're not going to get it. You can claim all day long, I'm called, I'm called. And that's right, many are called, but few are chosen and then appointed. And so there can be a calling, but until someone lays hands on you, and imparts that gifting. That, that If we want to call it an activation code, so be it. You can have that software downloaded all day long, but until you enter that activation code, it's a dead software package on your hard drive. Even So when I was ordained, uh, that Sunday morning, Miss Mary called me forward, and then Marlon and Miss Mary and the elders in our, those days, most of those guys are gone except for Marlon and Pastor Brett. All the other guys are gone. It might have been, it might, maybe Daryl was there, maybe Jeff. They laid hands on my wife and I to ordain us to ministry, to be pastors of this church. And it was, it was a year later because it was September, a year later, because we were set, no, no, it was less than a year. So it was 11 months. We were ordained October 28th. And then we were in a meeting with Dr. Barclay September the next year. And Dr. Barclay, we barely knew him. We were at Pastor Luffman's church in Clarksville. We got to sit on the front row and he called us up and he said, Chris and Manna, come up here. And he said to somebody, bring me my oil. And I've seen him do this maybe three times since then. He says, the Lord said to me that at your ordination, ministry giftings were lacking. And there are things that you're lacking in your ordination. And I have been instructed by God to anoint you for your office from the office of prophet. And so he took his anointing oil and he laid, he just touched my head and Manda's head and we fell out and we both fell out on the floor and trembled. We just shook and trembled. I don't remember how long we were in the floor, maybe four or five minutes. And pastor just went on with the rest of the service and just sat there and trembled. And then when we were finally able to get up from under the power of God and make it to our seat, I remember I trembled, but Manda trembled even more, just sitting there shaking under the power of God. That's a lot of what this verse is in reference to. I was ordained to ministry by Miss Mary, but she wasn't an ordained ministry gift. And Marlon, the elders were there and they were all ordained elders, but they were not ministry giftings ordained in an office. So my ordination 
was lacking. And there's no way Dr. Barclay would have known that apart from the word of knowledge. I didn't even recognize that, that shortcoming until he laid hands on me. And I said, yeah, yeah. So the Lord instructed him by the word of knowledge at this young man's ordination, things were lacking. Things were not imparted that needed to be imparted. So Paul's telling young Timothy, stir that thing up, that, that gifting that's in you. And it was placed in you by the laying on of my hands. That also goes towards the teaching on the sacrament of taking holy orders or ordination in the ministry that you can't appoint yourself. Because if you go out and do it, there's a lack of authority and a lack of divine deposit that is supposed to come through a ministry gifting. The Catholics have another doctrine that I, I kind of like. Uh, somebody in Africa pointed it out to me, not from a Catholic perspective, but they said, you do realize Jesus Christ, Catholics teach this as well, Jesus Christ laid hands on the apostles and an anointing went into them. And then the apostles laid hands on their disciples and the anointing went into them. And for 2000 years, there's a continuous flow of transfer of anointing and depositions of graces that extends all the way back to God Almighty. And I like that, that feels pretty cool. They also, the Jews teach the same thing with the holy anointing oil and the holy incense that every year it's mixed and there's always a residue from the very first batch that goes back to Moses and Aaron. Kind of cool. It's almost a ship of Theseus type connection. Verse seven, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Now, this is a famous verse. We all know it. We all quote it. Teach it to your kids. My kids know it. Very cool. One of my kids was dealing with fear and they were studying their Bible and in prayer and they came out of the room and say, God just gave me a verse. And we said, well, what is it, honey? Uh, this verse here, God has not given me the spirit of fear. And I was just so blessed that God would talk to one of my kids and give, give her a Bible verse. For God has not given us the spirit of fear. Now, interesting, the word for, the word for there ties it to the previous verse. Why would he say for God has not? Well, he's saying stir up the gift. Stirring up the gift is one of the answers to battling fear. If you're battling fear, stir up the gift. Stir up the gift, blow on those embers, maintain the glow, burn that fear off. If you're battling fear and insecurity, it's maybe because you've allowed the gifting that's in your life and on your life, and I'm not talking ministry gifting, but just the being a Christian, being born again, being spirit-filled, being full of the life of God, maybe that is what needs to be stirred up. And you stir that stuff up, you encourage yourself like David when his soldiers wanted to kill him at Ziklag. And they spake of stoning him. And yet David encouraged himself in the Lord. He was just a sorrowful. He had lost two wives and their kids and all of his belongings. He was just as much at loss as the soldiers were. And they want to murder David. What's David going to do? He encourages himself in the Lord. And after he encourages himself in the Lord, he says, now, hey, I think it was Eleazar. Eleazar, go fetch me the linen ephod. That's the priest's robe. And they think that inside the priest's robe is where they maintain the Urim and the Thummim. That is the light and the truth. These two, they're not sure what they were. Stones, sticks, ruins, as in uh, Scandinavian ruins, things that could say yes or no. It's one of the ways they sought the spirit of God. Another sermon altogether in teaching. David encouraged himself in the Lord, overcame fear, sought after the Amalekites, I believe it was, and recovered all and all their spoils too. You have to stir up the gift because God's not giving you the spirit of fear. Think of it as uh, 
two bodies of water. And the more you're stirred up, the more you push fear out of the way. But the more you're, the less stirred up you are, the more fear is going to push your confidence out of the way. So the famous verse, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. Paul never has to tell Titus that. Titus is just gung-ho bull in a china shop. He, he's the, the wet works guy. He's the heavy-handed. He's your hatchet man. You don't send delicate Timothy to an island of lazy beasts, gluttons, and liars. You send your hatchet man. <laughs> you, you send your Russian lumberjack into Crete. You don't send your mama's boy, your delicate, you know, tea-sipping, cookie-nibbling, limp-wristed, soft-handed, pretty boy. You send the Russian lumberjack to Crete. But here we've got to encourage the mama's boy again, who Paul loved dearly as his own son. And he says, God's not given you a spirit of fear, son, but he has given you the spirit of power. That's dunamis, miracle, explosive power. We've been given that spirit, spirit of love. Yeah, and a sound mind. That word sound mind means a disciplined mind. I would encourage some of you, because you still battle a lot of mental warfare, and I want you to know Hear me again. You can discipline your mind so that when you're, when you're not activating it to accomplish something, it just sits neutral. You don't have to always be thinking about something. Or if you are thinking about something, you're controlling what you think about. My mind, 20-something years ago, Pastor Vaughn taught on vain imaginations, and that revolutionized my life, especially as a 25-year-old. And in that season, I learned how to turn my mind on and turn my mind off. Now, pastoring and doing all the research I do, my mind is always grinding on something, but I give it permission to. And then when I'm done thinking, I just shut it off, go to bed, shut it off, watch a show, shut it off. If something doesn't entertain me, I will multitask. But my mind doesn't wander. My mind doesn't, I don't allow my mind to beat my head up. I don't allow my mind to fear. I don't allow my mind to fret. When my mind wants to trip in those directions, I've also learned through the years how to get down into my spirit and judge to see if there's a real concern or is it just a vain imagination. You know, you go out of town, you wonder, is my house okay? Then all of a sudden your mind just starts saying, somebody's going to get in your house, somebody's going to get in your house. And I've learned to say, shut up. And then just search in my spirit, man. God, are we okay? Is my house okay? Is this you talking to me or is this my mind beating me up? The power of a sound mind is one of the greatest powers we need. And having a disciplined and sound mind will make sure you finish your race. To finish your race, you're going to have to mentally manage more stuff than you have today. But if you can't mentally manage the little bit you have today, or if you're a daydreamer, the insulting term is moon calf. If you're a moon calf, let's look up that word real quick. I remember when I got the first teaching on vain imaginations on the outside of it, Ma Creeble had written, don't be a moon calf. A person who spends time idly daydreaming, that's a moon calf. A uh, congenitally, grossly deformed and mentally defective person. Oh, that feels a little politically incorrect. <laughs> a cog, uh, cognitively, grossly deformed and mentally defective person. Never seen that word before. 
Second translation or definition is a foolish person, a person who spends time idly daydreaming. Now, if that's you, mentally defective person, or you spend time idly daydreaming, you are not participating in verse 7, which says we have been given the spirit of a sound mind, a disciplined mind, a sober mind, a structured mind. If you're going to finish your race, you've got to be mentally disciplined because to go on in Christ, he's going to give you more responsibilities and those more responsibilities are going to require more mental management. And if you're fretting over everything and can't tell what's God's thoughts and what's your thoughts and what's the devil's thoughts, you're going to go in circles and that's where you're going to stall out at. Paul has to tell this pastor, listen, we've been given the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. So pull it together, boy, with your tears and your fear. Get it together, son. And that's what we have to do. Verse 8, be not there, thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. There's two things we are tempted to be ashamed of. Number one, Jesus, and number two, the church or the man of God we're connected with. Paul says, don't be ashamed of Jesus. And don't be ashamed of me. His, Paul said his prisoner. Could have been real easy for Timothy to be ashamed of his spiritual father and be ashamed of his Lord and Savior. Sometimes they won't make fun of you for your Savior, but they'll make fun of you for your church. <laughs> and you just have to laugh and shake your head at it. I know that if they're making fun of you because of your church and they don't have a biblical ground for it, it probably means you're in the right church. Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. We are all commanded to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. And if you want to know what those afflictions are, they are persecution, they are rejection, they are abandonment, they are betrayal. They are not sickness and disease, they are not poverty and lack. Jesus never suffered sickness and disease, he never suffered poverty and lack. Therefore, those are not the afflictions of the gospel. God will take care of his children. But what did, what are the sufferings of Christ? Betrayal, persecution, affliction, name calling, ultimately martyrdom. Those are the afflictions of Christ. I have no idea how we make up a new batch of the afflictions of Christ, things that Christ never suffered, and say, well, that's what we have to suffer. Verse 9 Who has saved us and called us with the holy calling. Now, we need to all be mindful we've been given a holy calling. And as members of the body of Christ, members in particular, these callings are varied. We have different callings because we're different people and we're at different stages of life. And there's always the next stage for your life. There's always the next thing you can do for the kingdom. It talks about a holy calling. A holy calling is what you do to help build the kingdom. And to be a business owner, that's a holy calling. To be a school teacher, an educator, these are holy callings. And those holy callings outside of the ministry are both in the marketplace, but also the calling in the local church. So you can be a stay-at-home mom and have a calling to be a worship leader like Miss Kylie. You can be an educator and also be called to be an elder. You can be an entrepreneur and also be called to run the sound team. These are holy callings. We have both an ecclesiastical and a secular. Ecclesiastical means church-related and secular just means out in the world. We have callings. And I would honestly give you guys mad props because I can't think of a better term right now. I would commend you guys because your callings are twofold, secular and ecclesiastical, whereas for me, my calling is just ecclesiastical. You guys get a double calling, what God's called you to do out there and then what God's called and anointed you to do in here. So that's a double grace I don't get. I don't get to have it. 
you get to have it. So rejoice in it. But know that you've been saved and called with the holy calling, not according to your works. So you can't earn it. You can't fabricate it. The calling is according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before the world began. So before you were born, there was a holy calling assigned to you by the father of spirits who breathed into your zygote, the breath of life. <laughs> and gave you the calling wherewith you'd be called the rest of your life. That's why building your life on the internet is moronic. Building your destiny off media and the world around you is moronic because the calling that God has for you is not based on Instagram or Pinterest or Snapchat or TikTok or YouTube or video games or whatever. It supersedes all that. It never took any of that into consideration. It was in Christ from the foundation of the world. So can you see how cheap it is to have the destiny and the calling of God who birthed it in you and gave it to you foreordained according to his purpose and his grace in Christ before the world began. And then you come over here and make up some little 2023 social media driven daydream. It's pretty shameful, isn't it? You can have the eternal plan of God founded in the mind of Christ before the world began or just burp up some little limp-wristed, sissified, shriveled up, I'm a social media influencer. <laughs> or I'm in the perfect will of my God. Follow me. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Oh, you'll just be Mr. Squeaky your whole life. He called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose. When you dream your dream, that's your purpose. It can go to hell. According to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, praise God, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Verse 11, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Verse 11, Paul gives us these three callings. They are first echoed or mirrored in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, where he says the same thing. Preacher, apostle, teacher. Here he says it again. Preacher, apostle, teacher. Three different callings there wrapped up into one man. And that was the calling God had given him. He had a different calling, a different dream. He was going to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Pursued that. Why was Paul going to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees? Well, he was circumcised the eighth day according to the tribe of Benjamin. He was going to be a Pharisee because it was a cool thing to be. He was going to be a Pharisee because he was zealous for God. And it's all his community offered as a dream. He became a Pharisee because it was in vogue. And so he's pursuing his dream. It's killing Christians. And Jesus Christ has to show up on the road to Damascus and say, hey, that Pharisee influencer life you're living, yeah, it's going to send you to hell. Why kick against the pricks? And thankfully, Paul, hungry for God, realized I should flush this Pharisee influencer life and get with the living God. And don't you know it was hard because this is all he knew. The Bible says he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest of all the, uh, it was called a rabbinical sage, one of the greatest of all the rabbis. 
He sat at his feet. He had a great life projected for him based on the cultural dream. And yet Jesus Christ came along and interrupted his vision. <laughs> and there was a better plan that was founded in Christ. Verse 12, for these, uh, for the which cause I suffer these things. And maybe that's why we do like to dream our dreams because they're going to make us popular and loved and liked. And if we serve God, we might have to suffer. But Paul says, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That is the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, the day of his appearing. We said it Sunday night, we'll say it again. If you live a life taking the path of least resistance, you'll end up going nowhere. The path of least resistance just keeps you going in circles. And weak Christians are like water. They'll choose the easiest route to collect in the lowest of places. And there they will sink, stink, and stagnate. And we're not called to sink, stink, or stagnate. We're called to go upward for Christ. So don't be like water. Be like the perfect sun, the perfect day that grows brighter and brighter. Verse 13, I'm going to try to finish this up. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. Let's look at that in another translation. Hold fast the form of sound words. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learn from me. Now here's the, one of the shameful things. Can I say that? Yeah, I think I can say that. Um, Dr. Barclay was telling me he had a guest minister in several years ago, a long time ago now. And he was telling me the Lord wanted me to have him in because the Lord had a word from him, for him. And the, now this guest minister is about equal with Dr. Barclay in the kingdom. But when you get to be that age, there's got to be some accountability. There's, you got to be able to hold each other accountable. So he has this guest minister in. And they're, they're driving back, I guess, after the service. And the minister asked Dr. Barclay, he said, all right, Doc, give it to me. And Dr. Barclay said, give what to you? He said, the word of God. I know you didn't have me in just to preach for you. What's the Lord saying to you about me? And so Dr. Barclay said, all right. He said, who was your spiritual father? And the man said, oh, Doc, you know who that was. He said, well, who was it? He said, well, you know, it was Brother Hagen." He said, okay, yeah, I thought so. You don't sound like him anymore. And he said, the guest minister said, he said, he paused and said, you're right. You're right. I received that. I'm going to make the change. One of the problems we're facing in the kingdom is that sons of the faith, even when they're 70 years old or 80 years old, because we all get old, sons in the faith give up what they were taught by their fathers, their fathers who God gave them to train them. So I don't ever want to have the testimony personally that I stop sounding like Pastor Vaughn or I stop sounding like Dr. Barclay or I stop sounding like Pastor Okoko. I want to cling to the things they gave me. Now, it may come up with a different lingo. It might be a different phraseology, different accent. But I want to cling to the same doctrine. And Paul's telling Timothy that, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me. Why did God give you that pastor? To learn things from him. 
Why did God give you that spiritual father? To learn things from him. So with this other minister, he had so drifted away from Brother Hagin, he no longer sounded like the foundation of his faith. And that's what God wanted him to sound like. He had taken on this new terminology, trying to sound cool and hip and relevant and all these other cliched, communistic, socialistic, woke terms. And he didn't realize he was violating 2 Timothy 1. He goes on to say, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, back to the King James, that good thing which was committed unto you by the Holy Ghost, uh, which dwelleth in us, committed the keep by the Holy Ghost. Let me give you that in the NLT. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. That again comes back to what we call doctrine drift. We're watching the church in America doctrinally drift. Andy Stanley, one of the biggest heretics in our nation now, is pro-gay from the pulpit, anti-Bible from the pulpit, pro-woke from the pulpit, pro-critical race theory from the pulpit. Um, he's teaching his people to apologize for who God made them to be and not repent for the sins. It's, it's heresy. This is doctrinal drift. His daddy, Dr. Andy, uh, uh, Dr. Charles Stanley, is rolling over in his grave, but he was rolling over before he died a couple months ago. We have to stick with the faith of our fathers. The orthodoxy that's been handed down to us for 2,000 years needs no improving upon. And we don't need to turn to the world with smoke and lights and mirrors and roller coasters and Mario Brothers or gimmicks or sham wows or concerts or magicians. There's a church in Florida has pole dancers. And the pastor's reasoning is this is their talent. They want to use it for the Lord. And I'm thinking, I saw the video. They're not using that for the Lord. They're turning on all the men in the church. Because that ain't God. <laughs> and that ain't dancing before the Lord. When Miriam took up a timbrel and danced before the Lord, there's no pole dancing on the side of the Red Sea when the horse and chariot was drowned. We got a church in Florida that's got pole dancers. And I saw another church that had those Cirque du Soleil rings where the girls twist on the rings and all that. This is a carnival. This is a circus. It's blasphemous. That which God has given us by the Holy Ghost we keep. And if we lose the Holy Ghost, we lose that which he's given us, which would also explain to us why a lot of these churches have drifted away from the faith of the fathers. They've left the Holy Spirit. You can't yield to the Holy Spirit and let your church go secular entertainment driven. Won't happen. The Holy Ghost wants to keep bringing you back and keep bringing you back and keep bringing you back. Verse 15, this thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Now, that's hard to hear. Everyone Paul influenced, everybody Paul touched. Does that include Antioch, his home church? Here at the end of Paul's life, he's now in Rome. Everybody, we would say if you were to take a line straight up the Israeli coast, through Syria, up into, what is that, Macedonia? No, no, that's further over. Uh, into Turkey there. Straight up, let that be Asia there. Uh, everybody from that line over, including Antioch, they're all turned against them. Jerusalem's turned against them. Maybe we get into part of Lydda and the eastern half of Turkey. They, those are all his churches. They've turned against him. Here at the end of Paul's life, all his work, all of his labor from a certain demarcating line over has turned away from him. Of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
So we don't know who those are. There's no cross reference to them, but obviously Timothy knew who they were. Maybe these were critical prayer partners. Maybe these were other apostles. Maybe these were disciples. Maybe these were uh, ministry leaders. Maybe these were Bible school leaders. But Paul names them forever. And these guys have turned away from and betrayed Paul. Verse 16. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he hath oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. There comes a time where it becomes uncool to associate with certain ministers. And the body of Christ is so fragmented. Everybody's got their own favorite little guru. But he says, may the Lord have mercy upon the house of Onesiphorus because he was not ashamed of Paul's house arrest. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. So apparently this guy was from Ephesus. And now that Paul's in Rome, Onesiphorus has found Paul and said, we heard you've been arrested on house arrest again. We came to check on you. That's, that's a faithful ministry partner right there. Hopefully you're seeing behind the scenes here. We think of Paul as the greatest New Testament hero outside of Jesus Christ. But even Paul had ministry partners betray him. Even Paul needed encouragement. Even Paul had a whole region reject his ministry. A region who would not be anywhere near where they were in Christ had it not been for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Even people he knows by name, he has to call out and say, they've turned away from me. Phygelus and Hermogenes. Yet there was still one man from Ephesus, that's Asia Minor, who found Paul in Rome. That's a long way to travel just to bring him some comfort, some food, some supplies, some clothing. Hopefully you're seeing as we go through these chapters verse by verse, you're seeing the details behind the scene of ministry. There's a lot of emotion spoken of in this first verse or this first chapter about desire and tears and joy and fear and a sound mind and love and then not being ashamed and then persecution. There's a lot of emotions being caught up here because ministry is very emotional. It's spiritual, but we feel things, so it's very emotional too. Ministers can be hurt. I, as I've said before, the most church hurt person in the kingdom of God is the local pastor. Uh, church hurt is this new hashtag church hurt movement. Church hurt is this new excuse. Insecure, immature, carnal, emotional Christians use not to go back to church. Well, I was just, I've, I, I've been church hurt. And now when you see pseudo Christian celebrities deconstruct their faith, which is a thing now, usually their, their justification is, well, I was just really church hurt. What do you think you're lambasting the body of Christ for the last two years on social media has done to the church? You're guilty of church hurt. You've been hurting the church. Why? Your church hurt because your pastor rebuked you for smoking dope and sleeping with the women in his church. That's why your church hurt. You were corrected. Your pastor looked at you when he preached a hard sermon. That's church hurt. So you're going to deconstruct your faith and go to hell or become a homosexual because your pastor corrected you or an elder rebuked you. Come on, man, grow up or you're not fit for this kingdom. Well, who, who says we have a right to be church hurt? We have a right to get right with God. That's about all we got a right to do. 
Nobody more church hurt than the local pastor. And yet we show up every service. We keep every appointment, come loaded for bear, studied up, prayed up, joyed up, ready to go, ready to meet with the next person, smile at the next visitor who wants to join your church. When in the back of your mind, you're wondering, are they going to be my next problem? Or are they going to be my next elder? Because you don't know. Are they going to just be a Sunday morning flirt? Or are they actually going to be committed to my church? <laughs> All the thoughts that go through a preacher's mind trying to help God's people make heaven. Hopefully you're learning something as we go through Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. And uh, I trust it's given you some insight, input. Maybe appreciate the local church and ministers a lot better. Amen.